Hello, everybody. This is Kim Nicolaitis with Advent Christian Voices. Glad to be back on the 23rd of April, Monday, uh, broadcasting live here from Honolulu. And uh, today we're continuing in our study through the uh, Gospel of Luke. We come up to the 26th verse. That's the visit of Gabriel to Mary in Nazareth. Normally, this is done in Christmas time, but uh, I think the message here is, well, we're not going to be able to cover everything in the message, but uh, maybe I should try reading a few of those verses and we can jump into it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel went, was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, trying to, to discern <clears throat> excuse me, what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive it in your womb. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Well, you know, it's been said that um, when a Jewish man wakes up in the morning, the first thing he does is to thank God that he was not born as a woman. One might think, therefore, that's the reason for the big differences that between the accounts that are given, for instance, in the birth of Jesus as they're found uh, here in Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. Not that there's any discrepancy or, or divergence of concerns <clears throat> or consistencies, rather, but uh, rather there is, I should say. The details which are recorded do reveal a striking divergence of concerns that are deemed worthy of being mentioned or of any importance in Matthew's Gospel, for instance. Not only do we not find any reference the accounts of John's amazing, indeed miraculous birth, or the angelic announcement preceding it. But there is neither any record of these miracles dealing with Mary. It merely states that she was found to be with child, period. The focus of attention of the Jewish culture for the family unit obviously rested upon the head of the household or the male. And so Matthew's gospel, which is addressed to the Jews of this day, of his day, rather, also focuses upon Joseph's experience in the miraculous conception of his son or Perhaps you could say stepson in a sense. Therefore, it was necessary that not only do we later have recorded for us the lineage of Mary in Luke's gospel, but here alone do we have the experience of Mary herself in this angelic encounter and in her miraculous conception. The role of women actually has not fared any better among Gentiles than it has among Jews historically, at least certainly not in the Roman or Hellenistic culture of uh, Jesus' day. Actually, there's that there is a far greater attention spent 
in Luke to the concerns of women doesn't arise so much out of its broader or more Gentile perspective. It arises rather, I believe, out of a more fuller view of God's revelation. That is to say that there's nothing subpar, subdivine about Matthew's gospel, but just that in keeping with the principle uh, of the progressive nature of revelation, I believe Matthew was written before Luke. And uh, Luke simply shows more of what God is revealing of himself over, over time in, in his plan for creation than what had been revealed in this world in, in the past. In other words, when God reveals anything to us in his word, he starts with where we are, and then he moves us forward. Where we are doesn't necessarily mean where it is, uh, where the Bible tells us we should be. It's just where we are. And there's no question that the uh, narrative in the Old Testament are dominated by the actions and expressed concerns of men since the fall. Men have simply always held domineering positions over women and over their communities. That doesn't mean that such domination was ever meant to be there originally by God's design. Furthermore, this isn't the first time in the biblical history where women are, are commanding so much attention or as much, if not more, respect than do their male counterparts. And this is not the first time when such an angelic encounter occurs initially, incidentally, with the, the mother or the uh, wife uh, of the marriage covenant, or where women are portrayed as having a major role or being the major character of the narrative, as was the case, for instance, with Samson's parents, or with uh, Hannah, or with Ruth, or with Deborah, or Esther. God not only, not only offers such opportunities of great responsibility for women in the Bible, but he also holds them just as accountable when they fail to live up to his expectations as well. As was the case, for instance, with Miriam, the older sister of Mer Moses, who suffered quite a humiliating rebuke when she attempted to usurp God's anointed leader at the time. So women are portrayed in the Bible. Their portrayal covers the entire spectrum, the whole gamut of what can be found in terms of their models of character and influence, whether for good or for bad. Consider, for instance, Jezebel, uh, the wife of Ahab, who really led her husband, and through him, the whole nation of Israel into apostasy. Or of Athaliah, who murdered her own grandchildren in order to cling to some temporal vestige of power at the time. On the other hand, there are very noble women such as Rahab, who at the risk of her uh, life hid the spies of Joshua, saving consequently the lives of her entire family. Or the uh, Egyptian midwives, for instance, who refused to obey the Pharaoh's order to kill the Hebrew children at the risk, again, not only of their livelihoods, but possibly their lives as well. Perhaps no one in the Bible shows greater courage, loyalty, or devotion than that of Ruth when uh, she insisted to her mother-in-law that she would not allow her to return home alone to her native land in Israel after her sojourn in, in Moab. Actually, Paul says something remarkable about women in his first letter uh, to Timothy that I think reveals something about the unique way in which God dispenses justice. There he says that women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. You know, I'd always thought of that passage as a conundrum, which appears to be at odds with everything I knew already to be true about what the Bible had to say about salvation until I recognized two things. The first was that the word used here for being saved doesn't necessarily have to refer to salvation. 
in the sense of being saved from God's wrath upon your sin, or of being saved from your guilty condition before him. Obviously, that's not true. Uh, that's not what this passage was talking about. The second thing I, I realized was a very crucial uh, <clears throat> role, or the, what was so crucial to the understanding of this passage, rather, was a correct understanding of the nature of the uh, shame and honor culture, which frames uh, the whole New Testament background and their writings. In other words, what Paul was referring to there was the opportunity which women had to be freed from the stigma or the shame, which was no laughing matter. I mean, it was an almost a, a paralyzing degree of shame, which women were subjected to on account of their role in the fall. So here we, was a chance to reverse that condition, which resulted from the history of the actions of one particular woman, that was Eve, the mother of all mankind, who is most famous, or I should say infamous, on account of her leading man, Kind into the fall, or leading them into sin, and consequently leading them into death, and all the problems inherent to that fallen condition we now share. How to get rid of that shame and stigma? Well, here now is the opportunity for them in the potential role they can play in the rearing up of children and raising up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That is something that God has uniquely and equipped uh, women, particularly mothers, to have and qualified them to do with their own children, which they raise. So where in the Genesis count, there is the appearance of an angel of God, you might say, in that case, Satan, who appears before a woman, in that case, Eve, to tempt her to disobey God and succeeds in doing so, bringing down the entire human race. In the passage before us today, we have again an angel of God, this time Gabriel, who appears before a woman, Mary, with a very young woman. At that, I might add, some would say no more than 13, but in all likelihood, certainly in her early teens. Once again, an angel appears, but this time to invite her to trust God and obey God in what may seem like an almost suicidal mission. <laughs> but uh, by so doing, to be vitally important as an instrument in bringing salvation to all of mankind. So what was this invitation? So Luke's concern here to cast the role of Mary, verses 30 through 34, the angel's announcement and Mary's question. Well, the invitation is for her to become impregnated with, bear and give birth to the Son of God. And reading this passage, we may wonder about the need for Mary to even be a willing participant, since, after all, what Gabriel says to her does not appear to be in the form of a question. <clears throat> he merely says, in effect, God has been gracious to you, so you will get pregnant, have his son, and the son you, you will bear will be very great. He will assume the authority of the kingdom, rule over the throne of David forever, and will be called the son of God. But the truth is, although Gabriel may have been able to say it in such a manner, uh, which he did, but it pretty much almost as if it were already a fait accompli, the reason he was able to do that was only because he already had a good idea of Mary's willingness to comply with those conditions. And we get that from the fact that she found favor with God. How does anyone find favor with God after all? It can only come through faith in him. In other words, God already knows the condition of our hearts before him. He does not really need to ask uh, whether we're willing or whether she was willing 
And that's one reason why there's no rebuke here, as was the case in Zechariah, when, he, when she raises a question about the means by which this pregnancy will occur. And that's a very valid question, one which she has not only a right, but a need, really, to know. In that culture, to tell a young, unmarried virgin girl that she's going to get pregnant has enormous ramifications and implications. To be caught in adultery or fornication or even to be suspected of it was to be thought to have committed a sin punishable by stoning according to God's law. It was also not a condition that you could expect very well to keep hidden from your family or even society at large, despite the rather cumbersome uh, attire described for women for the sake of propriety in those days. As it says, in Mary's, in Matthew's gospel, she was bound to be with child. There was no need for her to announce or disclose to anyone. It became pretty obvious to all with whom she was acquainted. And once the fact got out, not just her acquaintedness, but uh, would be informed, a scandal like that would certainly be the hottest news of the entire town. So there's no uh, rebuke here by Gabriel. In fact, we have a very detailed and specific answer to, answer to her question. Verses 35 through 38, the angel's answer and Mary's um, submission. What Gabriel describes in detail here to Mary is that God has planned the greatest miracle ever to occur anywhere to anyone at any time in the history of mankind, or that will ever occur anywhere again at any time to anyone in the future of mankind. You know, mir miracles occur in different degrees, you might say, or shades. Uh, a miracle is generally defined as an event that cannot be adequately or accurately explained by the occurrence of natural means. It requires a supernatural intervention of God into the natural scheme. Now, uh, at this time, no miracles other than the appearance, perhaps, of Gabriel to Zechariah, possibly the pregnancy of Elizabeth. There have been no miracles uh, occurring, certainly no record of miracles for at least the preceding 400 years. And now, beginning with these little families of Elizabeth and Mary, we're going to have an avalanche, a literal explosion of miracles, the likes of which the world has never seen before, nor will ever see again until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the greatest miracle of all, and by comparison with which all the others are relatively minor, is the incarnation of God himself, the taking on of human flesh by God Almighty. It's not only the supreme miracle of all time, which certainly could never be explained through natural means, but it is a miracle of such astounding magnitude and significance that it can never be explained to the natural mind, period. And even when it is accepted by faith, it is and always will remain beyond the combined resources of all our human faculties to ever comprehend. And this is pretty much what Gabriel attempts to explain to Mary when he tells her the Holy Spirit will overshadow her and her holy child will be called the Son of God. The imagery here goes all the way back to the very first verses in the entire Bible, that of Genesis, in which the Spirit of God hovers over the abyss, which immediately precedes God's abrupt declaration, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Surely such a passage with which Mary must have been very uh, intimately familiar. So what is happening here is that Mary is being offered the great privilege and honor of allowing her body to be the receptacle, that is, her womb, 
to become the, the nurturing place of uh, God, uh, the abode of this holy child, Jesus. We must remember that since Mary herself is a descendant of Adam, she, like everyone else who came into the world in the natural way, is a sinner. And that is from the moment of her conception in the womb, she was basically alienated from her creator and under the righteous condemnation of a holy God and under the sentence of death. The thought that she could ever possibly contribute her own egg or ovum, whatever, uh, which possessed her own DNA or her own RNA in the process of the generation of the infant son of God, no matter how sanctified or spiritually overseen or supervised by God, would be itself an anathema, because by virtue of which the son to be produced would still have in its genes a trace of the Adamic nature that is be directly traceable back to the first Adam and still hence be in a fallen semi-fallen condition. So that's absolutely impossible. Mary was not herself conceived without sin, and so the child conceived within the womb of Mary would have to be entirely the work of the Holy Spirit somehow imparting the substance within uh, Mary's womb. The basic makeup of that child, or it could have simply been fabricated uh, ex nihilo, as in the beginning, initially within Mary's womb. Remember, Adam in the beginning was fashioned from the dust of the ground. <clears throat> Jesus, the second Adam, could have been fabricated by the Holy Spirit in a similar manner. Because we also have to remember that the ground was under God's curse now. So I might prefer the ex nihilo version. But we know that Jesus was willing to take our curse upon himself as well as our nature when he came here. And that's exactly what he did. He ate food that grew from the ground and his growing body grew just like everyone else's did from that material which was under God's curse. In his case, I believe what happened to that material as it took part of, became part of his body, it was overcome by his holiness and it was sanctified. So I can accept that Jesus was willing to do that, but not the idea that he was a direct descendant in the sense of possessing the genetic makeup of Mary. That would be biblically impossible. So Mary's role was to be that of no more nor no less than a surrogate mother during his time, Jesus' time in utero, you might say. That is from the moment of his conception, his birth, and during his upbringing. That was the role she played. But still, it was a tremendous honor and privilege, not also without tremendous responsibilities and requiring very great personal sacrifices of which Mary would have been aware. She was a woman of faith. And she agreed with very little hesitation to do this. She is to be duly honored, and we all owe her a tremendous debt of gratitude. And as great as those sacrifices may have been, they in no way ever included the personal sacrifice of remaining a virgin throughout her entire marriage, nor having any children of her own. There's nothing in Gabriel's message or answer to Mary that would ever hint such a monstrous requirement. Nor is there any hint that the selection of Mary as a virgin in Israel somehow implied her to be more virtuous or sinless than anyone else. Her virginity was simply necessary to ensure the temporary sanctum of the womb during her pregnancy. It was necessary to both guard and to emphasize the sinlessness of the baby Jesus because of the far greater miracle of his conception within her womb. 
really being as it was totally the work of the Holy Spirit, not because of anything being sinful about sexual intercourse per se, or more virtuous because of Mary's virginity at the time. Just as Hannah, for instance, was willing to give up her child Samuel to serve the Lord as an offering in response to having her own womb opened from a condition of barrenness at the time. So she was rewarded for that offering or gifted to the Lord with multiple children of her own subsequently. And so also it is with Mary for her willingness to offer up her womb that it may be the temporary lodging place of the Son of God in utero. So she was also rewarded by God with several children of her own subsequently as well. She should have been. To suggest otherwise would have been to impugn the justice of God, not to mention his grace and mercy. Yes, Mary may have had to live out her years in a state which many of us in our materialistic culture, uh, without so many of the material possessions we take for granted, But to deny her the right to have any of her own children simply because you need to preserve some artificial image of her perpetual virginity is itself, I believe, sacrilegious. And in fact, nothing short of a very crass form of idolatry indulged in only by those who are the very sorry victims of one of the world's very greatest deceptions ever concocted by the very chief of all the counterfeits, and there are many of them, of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. So don't be be deceived by that. And we also know as well from the gospel accounts that Mary did in fact have many other children after Christ's birth because we're told in many places of his younger siblings, two of whom, by the way, became great witnesses to the resurrection and even contributing to our canon and were leaders of the early church, one of whom, by the way, was martyred for doing so. And we know him as James. I believe the Israel Jewish version is Jacob. In our account for today, we find yet another reason for the miraculous birth of the Baptist when uh, the angel Gabriel conveys that news to Mary here. It's so that she, that is Mary, will be able to find a place of refuge. That's what Gabriel is telling her, in essence, to go see your sister or your cousin, Elizabeth, basically to protect her as much as possible from the ostracism and the outrage she's sure to experience from her own family and the community in which she lived during her pregnancy. And we find Mary recognizes that as well later and and utilizes it, as we shall see in the next passage. And there's another declaration in this passage that seems appropriate that we can't afford to skip over it. The last thing Gabriel says here before his departure, which was, for nothing is impossible with God. And this is such an appropriate statement at this point in light of the magnitude of the miracle, which has just he just predicted, was about to occur. Mary experienced that miracle in her life in no small measure due to her faith in God. We can also be the recipients of God's blessings and miracles just like her in no small degree to the extent we're willing to exercise a little more faith in him as well. The fact that Jesus said if our faith was as but as small as a mustard seed, we'd be able to say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it would obey us, tells us something about our faith. It tells us that our faith is significantly less than what it can and therefore should be, since I've not seen too many people exercising faith of that degree. So when we say faith here, we're talking about not blind faith. It's about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have faith in something since it's impossible to live, by the way, without it. And the point is not the amount of faith we exercise. The point is, what is the object of the faith? 
that really defines our faith. Since our faith is obviously efficient, in that category, it would certainly seem one of the greatest needs we would be have would be to repent of whatever we're currently putting our faith in and turn to put it more and more into and on the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? Well, I believe it comes from getting a clearer and more fuller understanding of who uh, the Lord Jesus is, of simply coming to know Jesus better. And How do we do that? Well, we do it through obedience to his word, for one, which means not just that we need to know his word better, but that we need to prioritize our obedience to its commands more than we have. There are certain commands in his word which I believe should take precedence in our lives. For instance, we should love God above all and our neighbor as ourselves, and to do unto them as we have them do unto us. And what does that mean? Well, to put yourself into their shoes. And for instance, if they're without the possession of at least a salvific, that's their greatest need, by the way, a salvific faith in God, and you were in their shoes, what would you want to have done to you? If you're saved now, you would value and you value your salvation. And I think it's safe to say that you'd want somebody to tell you the gospel. Right? So that should be a priority to tell people who don't know the gospel. Certainly there's nothing of greater value in our lives. Certainly there's nothing that we need more. Certainly there's nothing that we would want others to do for us. So we need to ask ourselves a question. How many people have we told about Jesus this week or this year for that matter? You know, my purpose here isn't to flick some kind of guilt trip on you, but to get you to think about what you can do. So you won't necessarily have to feel guilty when confronted with some of these questions. And also to make some suggestions, because I know it's not easy to go out there and just start making disciples. You have to first be a disciple, which means you have to be in a relationship with someone you trust and to whom you're willing to submit to their authority to hold you accountable to them and perhaps them to you. And I know what human nature is, and I, for one, am not going to do something I dislike doing, even though it might, I may believe it's good for me, unless I have someone else, not just to encourage me to do it. Just this morning, I went out to run. I wasn't going to do it until I started listening to some uh, very encouraging music my iPad or on my iPhone. So do you have some, just such an accountable relationship with someone you that you trust so you can continue growing in your relationship with God? I certainly can't do it by myself without one. And neither, I don't believe, can you, if you're honest with yourself. So my suggestion is to, um, and my encouragement for you is to find some a small group somewhere where members are looking to deepen their own personal relationships with God through their regular fellowships with each other, their encouragement of each other. They're upholding one another through prayer. They're exhorting one another through scripture. And yes, even they're holding each other accountable through confession and forgiveness. So um, that's my encouragement to you. I hope that you will uh, see if you can find such a group and take part in it. And thank you. Thank you for listening to our broadcast. I, by the way, I just looked at this passage from Mary's perspective this week. I may look at it again next week from God's perspective because it's such an important passage and there's so much more in it that I really did not have time to uh, discuss uh, this week, but I see we're running out of time now. So 
I will sign off for another week. This is Kim Nicolaitis with the Advent Christian Voices here. And thank you for joining us.